Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 17, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick again. I'm the author of Spiritual Grit, released last year, and the Jesus-Centered Life, released a couple years ago, and the Jesus-Centered Bible, released, I think, four or five years ago now. And today is our third episode in a new series we're calling Fully Human. So the, the premise here, if you haven't been listening to this particular series, is that we know theologically that Jesus is fully God and fully human, but essentially what we do when we think about that theological phrase is we overweight the fully God part of that. We see Jesus as more as God than and human, but of course Jesus came to redeem our humanness and to model what, what it means to, to be fully human. So we're going to use a filter that he gave us for the way that he wants us to love in our relationship with him. The way he wants us to love is with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we're going to kind of use that as a filter through those four different lenses. We're going to explore what fully human looks like in his life and how that impacts and affects our life. So today we're going to peer through the lens of the heart to explore our love relationship with him and to explore his fully humanness through this lens of the heart. So this is uh, the, the idea of what it means to be fully human is actually what's the spark sort of that lit a fire under me to write this book, Spiritual Grit, which, by the way, is the hardest book I've ever written in my life. Uh, I wrote a book about grit, and it took the most grit I've ever needed as a writer to write it. So, But the spark that was lit under me was Angela Duckworth's research that eventually found its way into her book uh, called Grit, the Power and Passion of Perseverance. And that research was simply exposing or spotlighting how important it is in life to have grit, to have perseverance. Um, and it, it actually supersedes your IQ, your looks, all of these other things in life, grit is more important. And so Angela Duckworth did quite a bit of research into this whole engine of grit in human beings, but there's a couple of things that she didn't really explore. One was it's important to have a passion for something higher than yourself if you're going to have grit. She didn't really explore, well, how, what does that look like? How do you develop a passion for something higher than yourself? And the other thing she didn't really explore is, well, how do you live this out? How do you help others grow in their grit? And the reason why she didn't explore that really is if you're going to help people grow in their grit, you're going to have to make their life harder somehow. And, and that's a weird place to be. So what I found in the book that was lacking for me is that it explored grit from a human perspective, but not a fully human perspective. And I think you only get that fully human perspective when you look at how Jesus had grit and how we get grit by being attached to him, by being the, the branch connected to the vine. We get grit by attachment. So by the way, you can check out the book, Spiritual Grit, and it also has two devotional books that, are, that were developed out of the book by my friend, Michael Kiefer. One is for adults and one is for teenagers. So you can get them all together as a, like a combo package, the, the main book and then both devotional books. And uh, as you're thinking about even some graduating seniors in your life, 
who might want either one of those, either the, the Grit Devotion Book for Adults or the one for teenagers, makes a great little gift as they're heading into their life after college or their life after high school, which is by definition going to require grit. So you can check those out by going to the link that's on our podcast page. This, by the way, again, is season four, episode 17. So you're going to go to payingridiculousattentiontojesus.com and find those links. So today, oh, it's a good day. We have the Becky Nader in the house joining me in this exploration of the things that Jesus loved the most when he walked among us. So what did Jesus love and how did that reveal his fully humanness? How do the things we love really form our identity and how did they form, how, what do we know about the person of Jesus when we look at what he loved? And by extension, when we take a look at what we love, how is that forming our identity around the things we love and how is it forming the people around us? How is it impacting the people around us? So, Becky, could you say hello and then share something that right now you've developed sort of a somewhat of a new love in your life for? Not anybody, not a person, but what's something that you've developed something like a new love for? Well, hi, listeners. It's great to be back. You know, uh, Rick, as you were just talking about spiritual grit, Rick came on the More Than Me podcast and was a guest of mine last week. Shane, if you are listening right now, Shane is one of our uh, most dedicated listeners, Shane Becker, here on this podcast, left a comment for you that when you were talking about your um, road to writing Spiritual Grit on that podcast, it inspired him to finally go back and finish reading Spiritual Grit. He said he got part of the way through and he realized that he was too afraid to finish reading it. <laughs> because he was afraid that if he finished reading it, he was going to have to do something big. So that's so good. <laughs> you know, there could have been so many reasons that Shane didn't finish reading the book. That one is probably my favorite reason. The worst reason would be this book is too hard to read. <laughs> no. It takes too much grit to read your book on grit. <laughs> no, he said he's, yeah, I get it. Like you're pretty, um, you're pushing a lot of, you're pushing people to do big things in that book. Anyways, back to what you originally asked me. Podcasting is something that I love and has turned into a huge part of my life. And I was forced into it. I was definitely not like just going to the podcast game all on my own. It was something that I did for my job and that other people kind of prodded me into. And now it's something, it's part of my everyday life. I have recorded a podcast every day this week. Every single day I've recorded a podcast and I have another podcast recording tomorrow. And I taught a class today to women all over the country about why they would want to start a podcast for their business. And so podcasting is something I love. And tell me what's interesting here. This is what we're going to explore today is in what way is your life different pre and post podcast love? Meaning how, how has your developed love for podcasting actually impacted your life? So this is a, a good example of that. On the training I was doing, one of the questions I got was, what if I'm really afraid to hear what my voice sounds like? Yeah. My answer to that was, well, I didn't listen to a single episode that I recorded for three months after I started podcasting. <laughs> you are actually not required to listen to your own podcast. If that's your biggest fear, well, then just don't listen to it. You'll be fine. I have to say here, Becky, what if you do listen to yourself on a podcast, my guess is you're going to go, oh, I sound pretty good on that podcast, better than I thought I would. So you get a little benefit when you do that. 
But the, the point of it was that I used to be really afraid to get up and, and speak in front of people. I'm not afraid of doing that anymore. I'm not afraid of, I can jump on any training. I can jump on any video call. I know people, plenty of people who say, how are you on video all day? Doesn't that make you feel self-conscious? And it doesn't anymore. I don't have any problems within it, but it's all because I just started doing this. And the more I did it, the more I did it, the more I was comfortable and confident and courageous about it. That, what you just said, is like a huge impact, by the mm -hmm. way. Like that love for this one thing has spread like tree branches out and is producing fruit in so many areas of your life. So the things that we love make a huge difference in our life. I was just thinking about, I asked myself the same question, what's something recent that I've grown to love? And I was in my uh, desk one day and a friend of mine, Jeff White, who I work with, had just been through a devotional that I led during a breakfast meeting. And he said, Rick, you should really watch The Good Place. You, I think you would really love it. They, they're raising issues in that show that would intrigue you. And I said, inside, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's into their show. And usually I don't care very much about you know the shows that people are into. But he was pretty insistent about it. And then somebody poked their head into my cubicle and said, are you talking about The Good Place? Oh, I love that show. And so I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. So my wife and I, you can watch the show on Netflix. You can watch like the whole first two seasons. So we watched the first show and it had me because here's a show on sort of mainstream television that is trying to get at in a very inventive, surprising way, theological questions about God, goodness, what it means to go to heaven, quote unquote, what redemption means, all these things that you think, how can a show, a popular comedy, be dealing with these issues in such an inventive way? So I got, we got hooked. We watched the first two seasons like voraciously and then got to the end of them and then started piecemeal watching season three episodes. And it's not a universally, it's not from episode to episode incredible show, but overall, I just love this show because it has engaged part of me. It's engaged my head, but in a funny way. It's a show that's funny that engages your head. So, and the question then is, well, how has it changed me? It has led to so many conversations mm -hmm. and so many of our small group times have had embedded in them little clips from The Good Place now because it's such a great conversation starter. It has expanded the boundaries of how I think about what it means to be moral, quote unquote, and what value does that have? It's expanded the boundaries of when you think of people that are, quote unquote, bad people, what does redemption look like in their lives? So many ways it has expanded the boundaries of, of my life and it has made me laugh a lot. <laughs> it's the one show that has made me laugh more than any other. So all of these things are outcomes, are fruits of the things we love. So the big question here is how do the things we love shape and impact our identity? Uh, how do they influence our presence that we bring into the world? How are these things that we love shaping and impacting the people who are close to us? So I thought, Becky, we could tell a couple of stories. And since I've been talking for a while here, I want you to go first here. Could you tell a story about how something you love has impacted the people close to you? Or conversely, something you've learned to love in someone close to you, the thing that they love, you have learned to love also, and how that's impacted you. So you could go either way with this, two forks in the road, how something you love has impacted others, 
or how the something that someone you're close to loves has impacted you? Well, the perfect example for me. So I have a boyfriend. This is probably the first time I've actually said that on this podcast. We've been dating for nearly a year now. By the way, don't you think when you're past 30, we should create a better name than boyfriend? Totally. <laughs> hey, maybe, maybe the pigs on the pigs page can give some suggestions we, for what to call totally. a guy that you're dating when you're past 30 and not your boyfriend. And if you're a girl, if you're a guy, you can't call her your girlfriend. So totally. let's come up with a different word. We need but. a new name for dating in the thirties completely, <laughs> but he is a hockey guy. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking just like, Oh, I like hockey. He is the vice chair of the board of directors for the youth hockey league. He refs for professional hockey. He plays in a rec league. His daughter plays hockey. We are in the middle. If you guys know the hockey world, we're in the middle of the hockey playoffs. There is a hockey game every single day of the week. <laughs> every day there is a hockey game until I think the middle of June. Like I was adding it up how many teams still have to play each other. And I'm like, I think this goes the whole summer. This is a very big world. So he also organizes huge youth hockey tournaments that people come from all over the Pacific Northwest to attend. So I didn't know anything about hockey. I'm still trying to figure out a lot of the rules. And I've been to my first like professional hockey game. We've just made plans in January to go to this giant four day hockey event uh, it, it, in January. He, he talks about it every day. I, I have no idea what to expect, but hockey has become something that is part of my life every single day. I am making a website for the hockey league. I am immersed in it all the time and it's because he loves it so much. So obviously if I care about this person, I have to care about hockey too. So I, anybody who knows me is laughing right now because they know that Becky doesn't really sports and Becky have never really crossed, but now they are in my life. And so hockey's become a big part. And, and <laughs> I have world. to say, I have to say, uh, other than the time spent watching, how has, you know, sort of curiously adopting your boyfriends, love of hockey, how has it impacted you as a person, right? Have you noticed any difference in you? Like, are you more than willing to cross-check someone on a sidewalk now? Just take them out? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I definitely think that I, I've seen like a little bit of um, like, I get excited when the fighting starts because what I've learned about hockey, so when the fighting, like when they start getting into fist fights, it's actually strategic. There's a reason why they start doing that. And it's usually because the team that's winning is getting close to the end of the game. And so to distract the other team from being able to really make any headway and beat them back, they just, they just turn to fist fighting. They distract, that's their strategy to distract. Plus the crowd goes wild. Everybody likes the fighting in hockey. So while I, my first time I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening? They're hitting each other. Everyone else was going crazy. Everybody likes fighting in hockey. It seems like the perfect sport for middle schoolers. Like this is the middle schooler <laughs> ethic. Let's start a fight to distract people from what's going on here. Yeah. I always, I never understood that hockey is the only sport where you can break into a fist fight and the referees will stand there and watch it for a while. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> totally fine. Part of the game. They, and then they break it up if it gets, yeah, but it's part of the game. And also like there's, there's a lot of sports. This is what I've also been learning is there's a lot of sports that are trying to like lessen the fights 
and lessen the pain that that you know your student your kids are experiencing. I learned recently that some schools, like if you play dodgeball, you have to play dodgeball with these foam balls, which is completely not that like don't that don't hurt and leave a red welt on your leg. No, and they are impossible to throw. So the whole fun of the game is gone. But I, I do think grit kind of comes out of having to deal with tough stuff and pain. And so hockey is one of those sports that's like not going to give it up. So I think what we can take from this is that you're much more relaxed about violence in your life now that you're, <laughs> now that you fall in love with hockey. That's good. I guess, I Be, guess careful, so. Be careful about running into Becky in a dark alley. Um, oh, so, gosh. so I'm thinking that, so uh, I was meeting with a youth pastor a few days ago that I meet with every, every month. And we were talking about impact in ministry and where does it come from? And he's really wrestling with questions about, um, as we've been meeting over the months and he's been reading stuff that I write, he's really wrestling with some fundamental issues about ministry. And he's trying to experiment his way forward out of the conventional approach that he's taken before into something that he feels a kindred calling to more. And so we're talking about where does impact come in ministry? And I, I said to him, the dirty little secret of ministry, maybe it's not a dirty little secret, the beautiful little secret of ministry is that it's your presence that you bring into relationship that really makes the difference. Mm -hmm. And people hear that and say, yeah, 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 it's your presence, mm -hmm. it's in a relationship. But actually, there is nothing that is more transformative than your presence and how that presence impacts the people around you, not, your, not the quality of your quote-unquote teaching, not the events you plan, not your creative games. It's who you are as a person. So I was saying to my friend Radu, if that's true, then we are incumbent to pay much greater attention to our developing relationship with Jesus and how that's impacting our presence. If your relationship with Jesus is developing toward intimacy, that has exponential impact in the way that you're conducting your ministry and the way that you're influencing people around you. And I said, so that then also says that the things that you love the most in your life are what are going to spill out towards the people around you. And so I told him, uh, here's a kind of a silly example, but my daughter, Lucy, who was on the podcast about a month ago, when she was a freshman in college, she called me and said, hey, dad, all of my friends, uh, my huge circle of friends here, we all make these road trip playlists. We build these playlists that are, you know, an hour or two long, and then we share them. And we were on a road trip and everyone universally loved my playlist the most. And I said, wow, that's great, Lucy. What was on your playlist? And she started rattling off all of these jazz songs and R&B songs. And she said, she was basically saying, most of my friends have never heard any of these songs. So they were being exposed to something they never heard. And they absolutely love this music. And she's going on and on about how she built her playlist. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, you grew up in a strange house, Lucy. You heard jazz and R&B from the time you were a little kid. And you've known songs and loved songs that none of your friends have ever even heard of before. Because the love that I have for jazz and sort of old school R&B has spilled out into you. And now it's become your love. And it's become your love so much that you don't even recognize that it was someone else's love before yours. Um, have you ever had that experience where you've grown to really love something and you forget somebody else planted that love in you in the first place? It just kind of, kind of spills out of you. And about, uh, I think it was about a month ago, I did a, um, my church asked me to do a kind of a parent gathering 
because we've had a spate of suicides in our area. And the youth pastor at our church had heard me talk about a different perspective and approach I have to dealing with the issue of suicide and depression. And so the church asked me if I would lead a parent meeting, a parent gathering for concerned parents who are worried about their, their kids and what's going to happen if they sink into depression and anxiety. And that night I told parents, I'm, I approach this very differently than you've probably heard before. I think this issue is about identity and how, like we did, we, like we had in a podcast about six weeks ago, how destructive narratives can attach themselves to the, your story and they can grow up like a weed and kind of choke out your life. So we were approaching everything from this place of identity. But uh, in the midst of that, I asked parents to write on the note paper that I'd given them one thing that they love and it, could, and it can't be a family member. So I just asked them, think about something you really love that's not a family member. What do you love the most? What do you love the most that's not a family member? So I had them write it down. And then, um, then I said, now pause and take a look at what you've written. Stare at it. And then I said, whatever's on that page right now is forming your identity and is forming the identity of your kids. Because in life, what has the power to form us and those around us is not what we believe, not what we talk about, not even what we teach. It's what we love that really has a transformative impact on people. So if that's the case, and I believe it is, what we love is more important than anything else in forming our identity and the identities of those around us, then, uh, then we, we're, we're almost, uh, we have to be accountable to what we love. Because uh, that's what I was trying to say to parents. If what you really love is the American dream, the things that it represents, then for sure your kids are forming identity around the American dream. Even though you go to church and believe in Jesus and all these other things, if that's your highest love, that's what they're forming identity around. By the way, this whole parent thing that I did with them, I'm going to do a condensed version of this in our youth ministry local training this fall. So we'll be in about 40 cities around the country this fall. We'll put a link to our page if you're a youth pastor who wants to come to this half day of training. One of the segments will be this training on how to help kids who are depressed, anxious, or suicidal because it's an epidemic in our country. So we'll put a link to that on our page. But so Becky, here's a question for you. Why would it be true? So just go with my premise here. Why would it be true that what we believe is less important than what we love to our own identity and to those around us? Why, why, would, why do you think that would be true? So I, I've been having some recent conversations with um, a friend of mine who uh, is at that stage, you know, the like, you know, uh, a lot of my friends, their kids are about 10 to 13 right now. That's like the age range. And so they're going into, they're very much preteen to, to going into being teenagers. It's a really formative time of their life. And, and some of my friends, um, they were turned off by Christianity when they were that age. Um, so they're, they're thinking about how they felt about Jesus at that age by the way that people were betraying it because they were, they were pushing, like people were very pushy about their beliefs and they were really pushing their beliefs on them at that age. And it was a turnoff to them as a kid. And so now they're in a position where they're like, I want my kid to love Jesus, but I'm afraid of turning my kid off. Um, by pushing my beliefs on them. And, and, and so they, they've been talking to me about like, how do we walk this balance? And my, my thing is like, 
if you're totally in love with Jesus and he's an, an active part of your life, you don't have to worry about what they're going to believe because they're going to see how much you love Jesus and they're going to love it as a result. Like, I think that sometimes we get too controlled about this. And I, I know that as a kid, I felt the same way. It was like, my parents were living a totally different way, but then they were forcing these beliefs on me. And it was like, what are you talking about? I see the way you're living your life. You aren't living like you believe that Jesus is real. So I'm not going to think he's real, even if you tell me to. So it's so good. Um, and you know, I, I love that phrase you just used, pushing your beliefs. That That is such a common sort of default setting that we that we have kind of rounding around its way around in our head oh i don't want to push my beliefs if it gets to a place where you feel like you have to push your beliefs then you've lost your way mm-hmm. it's beliefs spill out of us in the form of our actions and our presence mm-hmm. that's what a real belief is a belief we have a wrong idea about what a belief is that it's something rational that we argue for or against that's not what a belief is in the mind of jesus Jesus over and over again said things like uh, to the to the crowds gathered around him while he was debating the Pharisees. He would say to them over and over again, "Okay, what they're saying is true, but don't follow their lives because they don't really believe what they're saying." And he would say over and over again, similar to the to, to the last episode of the podcast where we talked about Jesus was constantly prodding people to live or to practice their beliefs rather than talk about them or argue about them. To him, arguing about the idea of a belief was of almost zero value. It was really, what are you living? That's why he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, for instance, when the guy said, the guy asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, how do you read that? And the guy answers correctly. And then, but then the guy goes one step further and says, well, but who's my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? And then Jesus tells this story that, that basically says, if you're not living out, care for those who are hurting in need or poor, then you don't have a belief about that. <laughs> so, so our beliefs come spilling out of us. We, if we ever think that we have to push our beliefs, either with our kids or our friends or somebody, you've somehow lost your way. And I love what you just said, Becky, that that, that belief really comes from the core of your relationship with Jesus. That either, either there's a passion growing in you for him or not. And that's really the purpose of this podcast is to slow down and pay attention to Jesus because when we do, we get captured by him. So, so let's explore a little bit about what Jesus loved when he walked among us, when he walked on earth, let's dig into what he was most passionate about and how that really impacted the people around him. So I think what we're going to do is take a little sampler here again from the gospel of John, and we're just going to slow down. I think I've picked out five little moments here in the first five chapters of John that sort of give a, a, a window into Jesus and the things he loved. And again, we're, we're thinking through here as we examine these things, what does it mean to be fully human? We get a picture of that when we slow down and pay attention to Jesus acting fully human and in what he loves. So, so I thought we could start in John chapter two. If you're not driving and you want to turn your in your Bible, the John chapter two, you can do that. So on the podcast, you know, we uh, often overlap and focus on stories over and over again, because we just look at them from a different angle. 
And that's what we're going to do today. Some of these stories you've heard before on the podcast, but we're going to look at them from a completely different angle. So the first one is the wedding at Cana. And I love this story because I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just summarize it here. Jesus and his disciples and his family are invited to this wedding in Cana. And uh, somewhere along the way, they run out of wine, which is a huge embarrassment for the wedding couple. And the master of ceremonies is frustrated because this is a huge embarrassment for him as well. And so Mary, Jesus' mother, approaches him and says, uh, hey, Jesus, they don't have any more wine. She doesn't even ask him anything. She just, you can hear in her approach, uh, Jesus, I have a sense of what you can do already, and they don't have any wine. And Jesus' response is so intimate. Dear woman, that's not our problem. <laughs> My time has not yet come. So he's saying, you know, what does this have to do with me? He's not going to rescue the wedding. But she turns and tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Some pretty good mom leverage there. And what I love about this story is that Jesus looks over at the water jars that are used for the ceremonial washing, where you pour the water in your hands and you wash your hands. He looks over at these big water jars and uh, he says to the servants, fill those jars with water. Then when they do, he tells them to dip their cup into the, one of the water jars and take it to the master ceremonies. So just picture Jesus. He's watching all this happen with a big smile on his face. He's telling them, fill those water jars. Now take a cup. And now while we watch, I can imagine him telling his disciples, hey, guys, 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 come here. Watch this. Watch what's going to happen. The guy takes the cup to the master ceremonies who takes one step and goes, oh, my gosh, you're not supposed to serve the good wine at the end. What are you doing? And I, I just picture Jesus and his disciples laughing on the sidelines, watching this whole interchange. They were pranking this wedding. And this was Jesus's first miracle. So uh, it says here that this miraculous sign at Canaan and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. Yeah, it also is him revealing his sense of humor and his prankish spirit and the way he liked to surprise mm -hmm. people. So Jesus absolutely loved spontaneous moments, and he loved shocking twists. He gravitated to them. He was always doing this. So the question is, why? Why did Jesus love to surprise people so much, and how did that really impact the people around him? So, Becky, as you think about this, why would Jesus love to surprise people so much? Why, why did he like to kind of prank people sometimes? If Jesus wasn't an enjoyable person to be around, then he wouldn't have drawn the crowds the way he did. He wouldn't have drawn people towards him. And playful, fun people attract other people. <laughs> if you are not playful and you are not fun to be around and you're always a Debbie Downer and you're always serious and every time you're around with someone, you're criticizing them and every time you're around them, you're, you know, you're preaching at them or whatever, nobody's going to want to hang out with you. Like you're not going to be an enjoyable person to hang out with. And this is why Jesus was attracted is because he was fun. He was a good guy to be around. And you could say then that he loved these kinds of interactions. And in his love for those interactions, he was also modeling for us what it means to be fully human. Mm -hmm. To be fully human means to be people in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the spiritual war we're involved in, in the middle of the tension and struggle that we face, we laugh. Because our laughter, our, our love for fun and for surprise speaks to a higher reality. It says, this life 
isn't the only life. I know this sounds like I'm adding too much into this, but I really think this is true. When we laugh in the face of darkness, we are really saying that this darkness isn't the end of the story. The story keeps going. There's something on the other side of this. Our laughter is like throwing a fishing line out into the pond, into the joy that, will, uh, that rests before us. Not now, but sometime. And our, our laughter is a way of staking our flag in the ground and saying, there's not that much on the line here when it all comes down to it. I have an eternity of joy in the presence of the royal family and the kingdom of God in, ahead of me so I can afford to laugh. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, and I think the bonus here is also we learned that Jesus loved food, he loved parties, and he loved music because that's what was happening at this mm -hmm. wedding. We could have had a story where he said, uh, Jesus and his disciples were invited to go to the reception of the wedding at Cana, but he said no because there would be alcohol served there. <laughs> and the music they were playing was really not sacred music, so Jesus said no. No, he said yes, mm -hmm. and they were serving wine, they were serving good food, and they were playing music that wasn't likely sacred music. It was wedding music. <laughs> uh, what, was the, what was on the playlist at the wedding that came? <laughs> Who knows? But, but Jesus loved all those things. And he's really saying to be fully human means to love these things, too. There's also a little thing at the end there in verse 12. I, I just love this little PS at the end of the story. It says, after the wedding, Jesus went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brother, his brothers and his disciples. So after the wedding, after this thing that he did, instead of going back home or getting on the road and doing ministry and healing sick people, um, he took off with his friends and his family and spent a few days just hanging out together. So uh, in, in a way, this is part of, I think, his Sabbath lifestyle. He was modeling an unhurried life where hanging out with people took priority. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, you're Jesus. There's a whole world of broken people out there to be helped. And you go away to Capernaum for a few days to hang out with your friends. People in ministry need to hear this, that Jesus was not hurried or pressured by the mission in front of him. He was not worried that, oh, I need to be on 24-7 mm -hmm. because there's so much need in the world. He modeled for us something he really loved, which was slowing down and spending some slow time with his friends. I love this um, quote from Evelyn Underhill that somebody in our art department here at Group put this big, huge quote up on a, on a wall. So I looked it up today. It's from Evelyn Underhill. And here's what she said. On every level of life, from housework to the heights of prayer, in all judgment and efforts to get things done, hurry and impatience are sure, sure marks of the amateur. <laughs> uh, that, that's just thunk. It's like an arrow in my soul too. Hurry and impatience are the sure marks of an amateur. We know that Jesus was no amateur. Becky, when you think about this, this modeling that Jesus did here with slowing down to hang out with friends, what does that love that he has for that tell you about his heart? Well, I think that Jesus values rest in our life. And this is something that I have had, I have to constantly, constantly work on in my own self because I am a person who just runs. I get up and I'm run until I fall down in bed and I run again. 
And um, it's part of why I've kind of adopted some of the like hookah type lifestyle into my life where I have candles and cozy and record players is because I'm trying to remind myself in the environment that I live in that when I'm when I go downstairs out of this office <laughs> into my real home, that it's slow down time. It's time for, it's chill out time. And so, but he values that. He actually values rest. And when I was in full-time ministry, oh my gosh, I understand. If you are in ministry, I understand. You are boots on the ground. It's exhausting. There's always a tragedy going on. There's always something going on. And it's so easy to, to feel like all of it's your responsibility. And it's actually really hard to push back and say, no, I'm going to take a Sabbath. I'm going to do this when you're in that environment. I'd say our primary role in life is to worship. I don't, it's not a responsibility. It's not a should. Our primary role in life is to worship Jesus, to reflect back the beauty we find in him. And one form of worship is to love the things he loves. And one of the things we know the Trinity said from the beginning that God loves is rest, is Sabbath. The Trinity loves Sabbath so much they made it a commandment. <laughs> they didn't leave it to chance. They said, this is super important to us. And Jesus then models how much rest is important. So when we do things like what you just described, Becky, the, the, how do you pronounce it again? Huga? Huga. H-Y-G-G-E. So, so when you do that, this is going to sound funny, but it is actually a form of worship because you're honoring what is beautiful about God. Because what God said is, I love Sabbath. So when we create Sabbath around us, we are honoring him where his heart is spilling over into our heart when we do that. So Jesus was no amateur. <laughs> Hurry. He was never hurried. He was never impatient about anything that he was doing. He, he wasn't an amateur. So here's another one in John chapter 2. Let's see. John chapter 2, 13 through 22. Oh, this is where um, Jesus clears the temple. This is one of his most well-known stories where he comes into the temple during Passover and he sees all of the money changers and the people selling sheep and goats and cattle uh, there and exchanging foreign money and, and stuff. And he makes a little whip out of some ropes and he chases them all out of the temple. And he says, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then in verse 17, it says, then his disciples remembered this prophecy from scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. So this is, couldn't be more overt about, well, what does Jesus love? Well, it says right here, he really, really loves his father's house. <laughs> so the, here's the question. If the temple is the house of God, so the temple held the Ark of the Covenant, which was the uh, receptacle that God in his humility said, I will, I will reside, my presence will reside within this box I've told you to build. And that box then will reside in the temple. So the temple represents the tactile material place where God's presence is available uh, through the Old Testament. Now with Jesus on the scene, he then follows up this sort of clearing of the temple by when the Jewish leaders basically say, hey, who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus says, well, I destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He's really talking about his own temple. His body now is the receptacle for God. God is in the flesh on earth and now Jesus is the temple mm -hmm. on earth. And eventually when Jesus goes to the cross, and resurrects, we become 
temple. He puts the spirit of Jesus in each of us. So this whole business of passion for God's house will consume me. So Becky, what do you think the temple represented to Jesus? And why was he so consumed with love for it? I mean, this is really strong language and strong mm -hmm. actions. What do you think the temple represented to Jesus and why was he so felt so strongly about it? Well, the temple back then was where the presence of God lived. It yep. couldn't, it wasn't everywhere. And so you had to go there in order to experience the presence of God. And so he valued that. And so now we're the ones who house the spirit. And so I think that he probably would have the same fervor over our own lives. What is it that is keeping us from living in the spirit? What, what distractions or, or even just like what, what things have been said to us that are holding us back from living that way? He would probably be fervorous of anything that keeps us from the Holy Spirit truly working in our lives. So, and if our body then is now the temple housing the spirit of God and Jesus was passionate about the temple so just put two and two together here. Anything that is harmful or similar to money changing or selling cattle for sacrifice or things that that, that incensed Jesus that were happening on the temple grounds, if those things are true about how you treat your own temple, your own body, if you are unconcerned about the physical in your life, well, that wouldn't be in keeping with how, what Jesus loves. Jesus loves your body. That sounds funny, but Jesus loves your body. He, it's not just an earthly sort of container that just goes away at the end of our life. There's a purpose for it, and he loves it, and he wants it to be taken care of and honored. This ultimately is, if we're looking for reasons to live a more healthy life physically, at its heart, coming to love the things that Jesus loves will mean that that starts to spill out in your attitude toward your body, I think, as well. It's what really did turn the corner for me in trying to take better care of my body. I made lots of excuses about what I ate and how active I was for years and years, like everyone else. For whatever reason, there was a tipping point in my life. I think it did coincide with the path that I was on to a deepening relationship with Jesus. I began to care more about what I put in my mouth and how I kept fit. I just started caring more the closer I got to him. And I think it's because when you get close to someone, you start to love the things they love. And Jesus loves the temple of God, which is now us. So, yeah, you know, here's I, I came up with a little example of what this might feel like for us. So let's say you have you have someone you love who suddenly finds widespread celebrity, like they've done something or written something or sung something um, or accomplished something that makes them. A household name. They're now a, a huge celebrity. And of course, people come out of the woodwork with schemes and plans and stuff to capitalize on your friend's fame. And you're standing there watching this happening, that this friend whose heart you love is now being affected and leveraged and pushed toward things that make you uncomfortable. And in fact, they're dishonoring to your friend's heart. So you can't just stand there mm -hmm. and watch while these other people try to leverage the pure heart of your friend just for their own gain. So you step in and say, let's wipe all these people out. All these people that are kind of gathered up around you as your entourage, let's wipe those people off because all they want is a piece of you. It would kind of look like that, I think, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Jesus coming upon this scene saying, hey, I, none of this 
is honoring to the presence of my father. And I don't want any of it here, so I'm going to get it out of here. So that's maybe a way to think about what he's doing there. Let's do two more here. In John chapter 4, let me flip over here. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. This is Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, which we've uh, focused on many times here on the podcast. Jesus here is doing so many things that are shocking. (laughs) He's stopping and talking to a woman alone at a well in the middle of the day. She's not just a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. So on every level, this is scandalous that he's talking alone with this woman. And he's not just talking to her. He's not talking down to her. He's not bullying her. He's not treating her like she's lower than him. He treats her as an equal in this conversation. That's shocking. So many things he's doing here are just kind of unbelievable if we had any sense of what the norms were the time Jesus was doing this. So he has this long conversation with this woman that ends up upending her life. And when his disciples come back and see what he's been doing, they're like, uh, Jesus, what are you doing? We can't believe you're doing this. And inside, you know, those disciples are thinking, Jesus, she's a woman and she's a Samaritan. So in every way, she is the other. So here's what we, I think we can draw out from what Jesus loved. Jesus loved people who were typically shunned and demeaned. So he paid attention to women. He valued their stories. And that was in shocking contrast to the norms around him of his day. He was unconcerned about what the culture thought of who was in and who was out. That made really no difference to him. So the question is, why would Jesus buck the norms of his culture to outwardly and obviously express his love for these untouchables, for women, for Samaritans, for lepers, for crippled people by the pool of Bethesda, you name it, for tax collectors? Why would Jesus buck all the norms of his culture and outwardly obviously express his love for these kind of people? What, do you, what comes into your head when you think about that, Becky? Well, I mean, he... Just even like when he made the switch with the Canaanite woman, when he went just from from only serving the Jews to now helping a Samaritan woman and giving, you know, giving salvation to an entire community of Samaritan people, he he was making a declaration the entire time that he was here that these lines that we are drawing and humanity, these like, you're in, you're out, you, you live on this side of the line, so you're in this category, and you live on this side of this imaginary line, so you're in that category, or you're at this financial status or religious status. He was like, I don't see any of that. I see my people, I see every one of you, and I love you exactly the same. There are no categories, you created the categories, I didn't create them, and I don't see them, I don't have to see them. And you could apply that mentality to just about anything happening in this world today. There are so many lines. Like here we are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years later. And we are so drawn towards drawing lines around people and putting them on one side of the fence or one side of the line and the other. And he was, he was constantly saying, I don't care about that. In my own personal life, my entire life, my dad was taking us over the border into Mexico to do service almost every other weekend, working in orphanages, bringing medical supplies, painting. We did a lot of painting. 
<laughs> Maybe that's because as little girls, it was really the only like construction level thing we could do. But I just remember lots of painting. And we were, it was dirty and the kids were dirty and like, we didn't care. We just were playing. But he taught me from a very early age that he didn't care about the border. He cared about the people on the other side of the border and he modeled that to us and he made it important. And so I have a unique perspective sometimes on just what, how I feel about those, you know, people who live in Mexico. I have a huge heart for them because of what my dad showed me. It was in his heart for them. But all of these things, we, we do it in financial statuses. We do it in religious statuses. I, you know, sometimes people find out that I have a minor in biblical studies and they go, oh, well, you know, oh, okay, well, you know a lot more about the Bible. And I have to be like, well, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter at all. Like the Holy Spirit is what matters. Just because I went to Bible education does not mean that I have a closer relationship with Jesus or any of that. It really doesn't matter. We make all kinds of distinctions. Yeah, that's so good. And, uh, and I, I'm thinking about uh, earlier today, I had a conversation with my friend, Dave Ron, who's vice president of Youth for Christ here. Uh, he's over, he oversees domestic Youth for Christ. And so he has a very influential leadership role in this very large you know, outreach-oriented organization. And we're developing a Group U course together called Outreach Strategies. We'll put a link to our Group U page, by the way, if you're interested in exploring online learning in depth. These courses we're developing are really life-changing, extraordinary courses. So we'll put a, a link to this. These are designed for ministry people, but anyone could benefit from taking one of these courses. Uh, I have several on there already that I've developed, but this one will be upcoming later in the summer. It's on outreach strategies uh, that are sort of Jesus, a Jesus-centered approach to outreach strategy. And he was uh, telling me about one of the things that they train their Youth for Christ people in, and I was just kind of floored by this. Um, he said that they train people to approach people in relationship with a fundamental bent toward curiosity, not judgment. And I said, explain what you mean by that. And he said, well, there's all kinds of outward signals to us about who we'll approach and who we won't based on what we, we, we think that person is like uh, uh, given their outward appearance. You know, do they have a lot of tattoos? What kind of hairstyle do they have? What kind of clothing do they wear? And he said the Jesus-centered way of developing relationships with people so that your relationship with Jesus spills out into that relationship is to be fundamentally curious about the person. Mm. So, and I think that is so uh, emblematic of how Jesus approached people. He was fundamentally curious because he loves people. <laughs> He's curious about people and what, what drives them, what motivates them, what's your story? That's his whole story of the woman at the well. He wanted to know her story. He wanted to get her story out in the open. So he fundamentally approached her with curiosity. And I think this is such an incredible skill for us to learn so that it becomes like breathing to us, that we approach the people in our life with a fundamental curiosity. Let's do one last one real quick here and, and from John 5, 1 through 15. This is where Jesus heals a lame man. We could have chosen any story where he's healing anybody because he was doing this on like almost every page of every gospel. He's, he's encountering someone who's lame or sick or demon possessed, and he's bringing them into freedom. And so he, he literally gravitates toward places and, and gatherings and homes where there are people who are struggling with physical, mental, and emotional prisons. 
he loves going to these places. And in his mind, if we kind of slow down, pay attention here, setting captives free, it wasn't a compartmentalized sort of spiritual meaning, like I'm setting you free for eternal life. He was also setting them free physically, mentally, and emotionally. And he loved doing that. It was important to him to do it. So I've told on the podcast before, my wife Bev is involved in reaching out to some Syrian refugee families because as she's gotten closer to Jesus, her heart for the poor and the refugee has grown just naturally. It's been a natural byproduct. So she's uh, come alongside these Syrian refugee families in Denver who arrive here and, ha and have so many strikes against them trying to scratch out a life for, for themselves when they don't yet speak English and they don't have the skills they need in this culture. So she's come alongside them. And in the process, uh, I gave her a book for Christmas called Mountains Beyond Mountains, written by the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Tracy Kidder. And she finally started reading it about a month ago, and then she couldn't put it down. And then she begged me to read it so we could talk about it. And so now I finished reading it as well. And it's the story of a doctor named Dr. Paul Farmer, who has changed the way the world treats infectious disease among the poor around the world. He spent most of his life in Haiti um, changing the game for how poor people um, get uh, uh, medical treatment. And he's had unbelievable success in eradicating tuberculosis and AIDS in places around the world because of his unconventional approach. So this whole book is the story of Tracy Kidder just following Paul Farmer around and telling the story of Paul Farmer. It's just an absolutely riveting, incredible story. But one of the things, Paul Farmer, uh, Tracy Kidder doesn't make a big deal about this in the book, but it's clear that Paul Farmer comes from a Jesus-following background. And he has a kind of a love for one aspect of Catholic theology that's called liberation theology. It really resonated with him. And one thing that's, that's at the core of liberation theology is, is what's called the preferential option for the poor, which is just another way of saying Jesus seemed to prefer the poor to hang out with them, to change their lives physically and spiritually. Jesus preferred being with the poor. So let's prefer being with the poor. So that's what the preferential option for the poor means. But this story of Paul Farmer, who as he's coming out of his own relationship with Jesus, develops this deep, deep love and passion and commitment and determination on behalf of the poor, ends up changing the game for the poor around the world because of this love that he has. And I love something he says in the book. He likes to use little catchphrases and stuff that Tracy Kidder catches in his notes. And one of them is Farmer always talks about the H of the G, the H of the G. And the H of the G means the, a hermeneutic of generosity. And a hermeneutic is the way that we interpret the message of scripture. So what he's saying is, I practice an H of the G, which means my interpretation of scripture is that I am always generous. That to model the life I see in Jesus is I'm always generous. And so therefore, when I'm with the poor, I am generous and I'm generous again. And what's the most generous thing I can do right now? So he lived by the H of the G in his life. And I thought, I love that. That is so reflective of the heart of Jesus that, that he lived with the H of the G, <laughs> that he saw the message of Scripture, the message of the Trinity as being generous. So here's a question. How did this affection in Jesus for the afflicted and the poor in his culture, how did this impact the culture around him? And since then, do you think, Becky? I mean, 
the fact that Jesus modeled this kind of love for the poor, how do you think that's spilled out even into our world today? What are some things you think about? I mean, social justice, I think, has become a big part of what we participate in with Christianity. And it, when we say, well, if Jesus was for everyone, then he doesn't really care about our borders. If you know, he doesn't really see them, like it's invisible. He doesn't care where people live. He doesn't care if they have nothing or if they have everything. He cares about all of them. And so when we see people suffering, we are naturally more drawn to, to help them out of suffering. That's just, it's just part of the heart of Jesus. And so if you're following Jesus, it just ends up being a part of your heart too. You can't really help it. I don't think. And it's spread. Uh, I've mentioned before on the podcast, this book by John Ortberg called Who Is This Man? And it's an incre- I highly urge you to read this book because in this book, he describes how things like this, how Jesus changed the game in, in, the, in the way that he loved the poor, has now filtered out into um, hospitals and outreaches to the poor around the yeah. world. It, it's common for us, but it wasn't common at the time of Jesus. It was exactly the opposite. Here's just a little quote from Ortberg's book. Those who follow Jesus would begin to act as if every life is worth something. The community of people called Christians would minister to the sick and disabled and build hospitals and pursue universal education and spread teaching through universities and lift up the poor in faraway places because, quote, they would inherit the earth. So what he's saying here is that this love that Jesus had for the poor has now spilled out into universities and hospitals and modern medical care and and all of this stuff that we see around the world that we don't really directly attach back to Jesus is directly attached back to his love for the poor. Yeah. So it's it spread throughout the world. So to wrap up, so as we get closer and more intimate with Jesus, you know, we've said several times now, we begin to love the things he loves. Mm-hmm. That's the true sign of any intimacy in any relationship. As you get closer to a person, you begin to love the things they love. It's like the reason why some old people wear the same kind of clothing. <laughs> they start to love even down to that level. So I'm saying, I think instead of asking WWJD, what would Jesus do? We could instead ask WDJL, what did Jesus love? That's a better question. Mm-hmm. What did Jesus love? What does Jesus love right now? And when we learn to appreciate and to, and to love the things that he loves, we're transformed more and more by his heart, and we begin to act out in, in practical ways the things that he loves. So WDJL, what does Jesus love? is a much better question than WWJD, I think. <laughs> but please don't make bracelets and T-shirts and <laughs> That's right. mu- coffee mugs. We are not looking for another. <laughs> so, Becky, I wanted to ask you about this one. Here's another thing that comes out of this. Learning to love the things that others love, especially those that are close to us. You, you shared your hockey story mm-hmm. at the beginning, but uh, this is not a should, really. But if we approach these things that people that we care about we approach their loves, then we are really giving them sort of the gift of curiosity. So when you think about what it means to love the things others love, how would we go about that in our everyday life? Instead of letting their loves be private to them, how would we go through life learning to be more open to loving the things that the people around us love? Well, this podcast is called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus because... We're doing that 
because we love him. We want to pay ridiculous attention to Jesus because we love him. And so we want to pay attention to the things that he wants for us and from us in our life. And so if that is the method that you use when you love something, then why wouldn't you apply the same method to the people that you love? So if your spouse loves something and you pay attention to it and you invest in it because they love in it, maybe you didn't even have that interest coming into your marriage and you were like, I'll never be interested in that. Well, you do it because you love them. And when, when you pay attention and you start participating in the things that other people love, it makes them feel loved, right? (laughs) So I just, I think that paying ridiculous attention is a love language. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think you could legitimately say that the greatest gift we could give anybody in our life is the gift of our curiosity, Mm -hmm. our benevolent curiosity. So paying better attention to the things that we love also is super important. If you think about all that we're saying here, examining the things that you love is worthwhile, not mm-hmm. as a should, but as a diagnostic. What are the things that I love? Our, our question is, why do I love this? And why is my love for it grown stronger or lesser as I get closer mm-hmm. to Jesus? There are things that I used to love that I don't love so much anymore as I've gotten closer to Jesus. So examining what it is, what is it that I really love and how has my growing relationship with Jesus impacted that love can give us a hint mm-hmm. about our way forward. And maybe a hint about some things that maybe we could probably leave behind now. Because if the love for it's diminishing as you get yeah. closer to Jesus, maybe it's okay to let that thing go, whatever it is. Even if, yeah. it, if it's been a love of yours your whole life, maybe if it's, that love is diminishing, maybe we just let it go. And because the things that we love have a forming influence on us and those around us, we have to be awake to the impact of our loves on other people. It's mm-hmm. just so true. The things that we love do impact the people around us. So if, if we're influencing them with our presence, then our, and our presence is formed by the things that we love, then you keep tracking back here, well, what is it I love mm-hmm. in the end? Any last thoughts here, Becky, before we uh, close this off? Any stray, stray insight that you've had along the way? I think that living this kind of life will have a tremendous impact on the people around you. If you start just living out, loving Jesus this way, people are going to be attracted to Jesus. They won't be able to help themselves. Not because you're following a formula or a strategy. It just just spills out of you. Love that so much. So gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. You'll find our podcast section there with season four, episode 17. Remember, uh, check out that link on our Spiritual Grit Combo, the book and the two devotions. And you can also, if you want to, go to lifetree.com for links or group.com if you want to see the wide array of the things that we are producing here trying to help people grow closer to Jesus. This is, in fact, the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll talk again next time. Becky will be back with us in a couple of weeks. Bye.